I'm Graham Rose, and you are listening to Fred Jeff's The Sweet Shop Murder. My attempt to unravel the mystery of the unsolved murder of my great uncle, Fred Jeffs, by talking to those who still remember the case. Episode 6 Sex and Clubs and Rock and Roll. Fred locked up his Stanley Road sweet shop at 9 pm on the evening of Maundy Thursday and drove off in the direction of Worley Woods to take his dog Perro for a stroll. He had with him the shop takings from what was likely the most lucrative week of the sweet shop year. But if he didn't think it dangerous, why would he carry an air pistol in his pocket for protection? He must have had something, I mean. He knew something about what was going to happen to him, but it was his fault, but I can't tell you no more. They can't tell me no more, but... 60 years after the murder, I'm still meeting people who believe Fred had it coming to him, who think that he must somehow have deserved this brutal comeuppance, but who seem wary of revealing the full picture, as if whoever was responsible for his murder is still casting a shadow and wielding influence in these neighbourhoods. Robbery is the obvious motive for the attack on Fred, but it was certainly well-planned, vicious and executed with extreme malice. Could Fred have been up to something else that might warrant the need to defend himself? A police statement in the Smethic Telephone reported that from house-to-house inquiries, we know that Jeffs was often seen late, after 11pm, at the Beechwood Road entrance to Worley Woods. Residents say they've seen him sitting in his van with a girl next to him. Was Fred seeing someone he clearly shouldn't have? Had he been ensnared, caught out, by a husband, a boyfriend, or other family members? And the rumour always was that some husband, got an idea his wife was sort of having it off, followed them from there to Sandwell Nature Reserve, or wherever it was, they found the body, and sort of sorted him out. It was done to get back at him, weren't it? Because he, he, he did lock the women down. Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, done it on out. That's, that's the absolute truth. Somebody done a job on him. Did he have a bit of a reputation, do you think, for, for being yeah. a womaniser? Yeah. Used to pick. That's the women Did you know? Nasty women casts an unsavoury pall over the seemingly respectable veneer of Worley Woods. More than just a secret love tryst, the suggestion of nasty women implies something much darker, seedier, perhaps involving a cash transaction. It could just be the rumour mill at work, but is there any basis of truth in this connection to an illicit underworld? The general talk was, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit cruel to tell you this over the phone because I don't know you, I haven't seen your face, and it, it, sounds, it sounds awfully uh, sadistic to sort of say it. It was concerned with sex. And the woman, how can you explain? She was like uh, a shagger, and, and Jeff's like the women. I think that's all I can say. In the hunt to identify the mystery woman, 
Police say they'd interviewed several women, euphemistically described as of dubious character, who say they recognise Fred from his picture but don't know him by name, which suggests he was soliciting for trade, and which begs the question of whether Fred nurtured a reputation for being a man of means, flush as he was with cash intended for the bank's night safe. The telltale signifier for sex workers of the time was supposedly a bracelet worn on the ankle. And if Fred did indeed conduct dalliances with ladies of the night, is it possible our mystery woman, that nice, well-dressed girl seen by Sister Ivy in the shop on Maundy Thursday, could have also been on the game? Did she rendezvous with Fred that night, aware that he'd have a substantial amount of cash on him? And if so... Did she knowingly lure him into the path of the murderer, her accomplice, her pimp even, or someone she had other business interests with? He was a crook. He was a professional crook. He, he knew all the, all the angles and the get-outs. And um, I don't even know where the blood was, but I, in, in the days that I'm talking about, five or six years after the actual murder, uh, people that I was meeting then did come in contact with other people who knew people in Birmingham and all this was going on apparently I mean nothing to do with the sweet shop this was basically to do with Broad Street This revelation is from a contact of a friend of a friend who clearly remembers colleagues talking about the Jeffs case back in the early 1960s when he was working as a driver He goes on to suggest that some of his fellow drivers were running errands for gangland bosses The impression I got shall I say based upon the fact that your uncle wasn't a bad guy. He was, he was actually romantically attached to this woman. And he tried to pull her out of the... Uh, what's it? Now, this is the story I heard. Uh, the pub that was mentioned, I can vaguely remember now, um, was uh, a very famous little pub in, in Broad Street by the tow rope. The name just eluded me. It's, it's knocked down now, but it used to be in Broad Street by Bingley Hall there. He, he interfered. He used to go to the dodgy clubs, hadn't he? Well, Who's the good to strip clubs or something? I don't know that. All dodgy clubs. I don't know that. So, all dodgy with me. Oh, no. The suggestion here, then, is that Fred had fallen for a girl working in a club and had tried to get her out, perhaps buy her out of that world. And when the so-called King of the Crooks found out, he wasn't having any of it and saw an opportunity to take advantage of Fred's vulnerability. By mentioning a Broad Street connection, the net is cast firmly in the direction of the city centre, with the more exciting, profitable and edgy territory of clubland. Late-night drinking dens, wheeler dealings and backdoors into illicit trade or gambling that some policeman of the time might turn a blind eye to. Phone calls and a few favours to the top brass, strip clubs and sex joints, Broad Street is still the bawdy, booze-fueled epicentre of Birmingham nightlife, with scantily clad young women luring custom in off the street. It's the principal West End thoroughfare out of town, leading to the suburbs of Edgbaston, Bearwood, and the city limits at Quinton, beyond which the sun goes down. Against a repressive backdrop of post-war austerity, rationing, and a burgeoning black market, the war babies coming of age in the mid-50s spawned an emergent teen culture. Gramophones blasting out trap jazz, skiffle, and most invasive of all, rock and roll. 
Abandoning oneself to a tribal gang culture was relief to those wishing to escape the residue of violence that existed for many at home. The backwash of a world war, occasionally meted out by returned servicemen on wives, children, neighbours, if not physically, then psychologically. And violence begets violence. George Bob, you want to shoot her? That's where you go. Talking about hard cruisers, I don't go for bank robberies and everything. Now, this bloke may have seen something. That's why they got rid of him. Winter, not come from. But I'm not going to sign no more. Mum never but forgot it. I don't know who done it. Tell me what you heard. She's of, 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 was of Italian origin. Where am I? Of. Italian origin? How do they know this? The West Midlands has always been a melting pot for migrant cultures since the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. Drawn like moths to the flames of Vulcan's furnaces to a mythical, soot-blackened workshop of the world. Italians first appear in the centre of Birmingham as economic refugees in the 19th century, as textile workers, organ grinders and confectioners. But this is the first I've heard of an Italian community out toward the black country, west of Birmingham. Used to be a prisoner of war by the Alpine Grounds as well. Yeah. My mum was born in Smithy. I know the Italians, the prisoner of war, built the prefabs yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah. So my mum used to say, don't you? It's on top of what's called hilltop. There's like old uh, gun sites, but there's like little shelters where they kept the Italian prisoners of war. Oh my and my mum, about 10 then, when the Second World War was on, and she used to go over there, and the, the Italian prisoners of war, and it was Italian, I know she told me, used to make weave baskets for them and give them to the kids. Despite there being no official records of Italian POW camps in the area, local memory tells us otherwise. Camps were built next to the West Bromwich Albion ground and up at Hilltop Gun Emplacement in Handsworth, both of which are, coincidentally, short walks from the spinney where Fred's body was found at Wasson. And aside from building prefabricated dwellings in Warley Woods, the Italian prisoners of war were deployed in industry, notably at the giant chemical factory of Albright and Wilson in Langley. I used to work at Albright yeah. and Wilson's. The story goes that um, one of the senior management directors, um, after the war was over, it, it, it had such a, a, good, a, a good response from the prisoners of war yeah. working under him. He sent a ship down to the Bay of Naples to bring the wives up. And when I was working in there, the toilets had still got Signorina Salamente on, on, you know, that sort of stuff. Wow. So this is in the mid-60s. There were, were prominently Italian people all around there. With the end of the war, the POW camps were converted to displacement camps, which existed well into the 1950s, housing refugees transferred to Britain from their own war-ravaged countries, including Italians, Poles and Ukrainians. Intrigued by this Langley connection to the Italian origin reference, I go to Vicarage Road, Langley's High Street, where Fred's van was seen parked up on Maundy Thursday, 
and I find that Tony's garage used to be owned by Antonio. The kebab shops opposite each other used to be Italian-owned fish and chip shops. A shop assistant in the school outfitters tells me she remembers Italians living up the nearby Richmond Hill, so I drive up there. I'm in unfamiliar territory now, but when I cross into Dog Kennel Lane, that reminds me of something, and lo and behold, I find myself at the very site where Pero, Fred's faithful poodle, was spotted, distressed, on the evening of Maundy Thursday. Random jigsaw pieces start fitting together. It all seems too good to be true. I contact an Oldbury local history website asking about Italian businesses in the Langley area in the 50s. And to my amazement, within hours, there are a hundred comments and replies. Dozens of family names. Carlucci, Colandra, Nadiello, Valenti, Bruglio, Fragnoli's ice creams, delivered by horse and cart. Bonacorsi's sweets, delivered in a pink and cream Austin van. Hang on a minute. Have I stumbled across a new motive for a grievance against Fred? Ice cream turf wars. It turns out the Italian influence in this area of Oldbury and Langley was undeniably significant. And if Fred did have a partiality towards Mediterranean-looking beauties... She looked a bit Greeky, very dark, very, very attractive. Well, perhaps he'd simply fallen for the wrong girl. Or... A girl from the wrong family. It weren't a mafia. It's like a crook's girlfriend. That's all it is. The music's about to start, so I'm... And I'm fed up with it hearing about it. While I'm dipping into this new line of inquiry, trying to make sense of an Italian connection to the mystery woman, I stumble across a Birmingham Post article from the 25th of May, 1957, six weeks after the murder and sometime after the initial heat of the investigation has cooled down. It reports a fresh angle on the events of Maundy Thursday with testimony from a new witness pointing to a possible link with a shady underworld of organised crime. The witness is Jan Atchenit, described as a Czech refugee. It says he spent time in a Nazi internment camp during the war and that he'd not come forward earlier on because of this, the implication being that he did not want to stick his head above the parapet in fear of repercussions. Jan Atchinet, it transpires, was walking around the golf course at Woolley Woods on the night of the murder. And his story begins when he passes a black sports car parked up by the water tower. A series of police photographs on the site show six plain-clothed detectives talking to Jan at the scene, with the iconic Woolly Water Tower behind them. Jan is in a tweed suit, his blonde hair swept back, surrounded by the suited detectives, one wearing a Homburg hat and a long coat. In another picture, Jan points purposefully down the fairway towards the eighth tee. I thought it was strange, he says in the paper, because both doors of the sports car were open 
but no one was in sight. I then saw a black dog running across the golf course towards the bushes. Then I heard car doors banging and I saw a grey van driven fast along the road without any lights on. This is Fred's van, surely. I only saw two people, he says. A man aged about 50, small and thin-faced, wearing a dark cap, and a woman with long, wavy hair, wearing a short coat. Is he describing our mystery woman? And if so, who's the older man in the cap? Is he the same man seen behind the wheel of Fred's van at the rear of the sweet shop at about 11 o'clock? Is he the man who attacks Fred, the killer? And if he's the one driving Fred's van, then what happens to the black sports car? An MG, perhaps, or a Jag? Is that driven away by a third, unseen accomplice? Or driven away by the girl in the true style of a femme fatale? A black sports car. The kind of flash vehicle favoured surely by a gangland boss and his mole. But who are these people? And what has Fred got himself involved in? How deep is he that it will end so badly? Jan's witness statement gives some credence to the idea that this is no small-time operation. There is arguably an organised criminal or gangland element. The scope of the story is broadening. But despite the appearance and witness statement of Jan Atchinit, which vividly depict the context of the brutal attack, robbery and murder of Fred Jeffs, no one else comes forward with supporting information about the perpetrators. Can anyone verify the account of Jan Atchinit? And what more will we find out about him? He appears just as the people of Worley, Bearwood and Quinton go quiet. Are they scared of something? Their attention seems more happily focused on the allure of the mystery woman, variously described as very nice looking, respectable, but also a crook's girlfriend, a gangster's mole. She's a lure. She's a good time girl, a nasty woman. She's on the game. She's a rock and roller. She's a badden. She's a married woman, a wronged woman, a pregnant woman. She's someone's daughter, wife, girlfriend or sister. And while all eyes are focused on unravelling her, the killer himself has slipped away into the shadows, vanished. No one wants to talk about him. We're just left contemplating the silver screen version of an exotic, sexual, dangerous, culpable mystery woman. The classic femme fatale. Bonnie without the Clyde. The Clyde who strikes the fatal blows and who in the small hours of Good Friday speeds between the sleeping factories of Smethwick skirting the Albion ground on his way up Park Lane to Wasson, where he swings right onto an overgrown track, brakes sharply and stops. Engine still running, he opens the back doors of the grey Austin A30 Countryman and hoiks the bludgeoned body of Fred Jeffs out onto the cold ground. 
Using the belt from the dead man's Macintosh, he drags the lifeless body several yards into a hollow, shallow grave in bushes beneath an elder tree, where he covers it up with a piece of tarpaulin, rubble and bracken. A lump of concrete marks the space where a head might be seen. An owl disturbs the scene, and the killer makes off. But not before he dispenses with or mislays the bloodied weapon in a dark roadside verge. He heads east to Witten, getting rid of Fred's pistol along the route. Parks up in a quiet back alley, and just before the light breaks, walks off either to the safety of a relative's house or to the nearby station to catch the first train home. And as the murder case of Frederick Walter Jeffs grows colder, rumour and speculation fill in for the absence of truth. In fact, we colour in the empty shape that was once a living, breathing, loving human, the owner of a sweet shop, with the image of a man who was fatally flawed and who deserved to die in the way he did. And consequently, Fred Jeffs has become victim twice over. Join us for the next and final episode of Fred Jeffs' The Sweet Shop Murder, which looks back on Fred's funeral, the inquest and the aftermath of the case and asks why the Jeffs murder made such an impact on the lives of those growing up in Quinton, Worley and Smethwick in the late 1950s. Where our love was true But a cold April wind said we were through Fred Jeffs' The Sweet Shop Murder is created by me, Graham Rowe with original music and sound design by Fox and Rocher, and direction from Steve Johnston. This podcast series is made possible with the support of Black Country Touring, and the original theatre production was supported by the Birmingham Rep and the Arts Council of England. If you'd like to rate, review, or tell us who done it, please get in touch. Hashtag Fred Jeffs. <laughs>